Bob? When I was a boy, back in Arkham, <laughs> I, too, lived through the Great Depression. As far as I'm concerned, it wasn't all that great. <laughs> when I got out of high school, by expulsion, I uh, was faced with a terrible choice that everybody had in the Depression. It was a dilemma. You either work or starve. I decided to combine the two by becoming a writer. <laughs> now, it's, I am afraid, a matter of fairly common knowledge that H.P. Uh, Lovecraft is the one who was responsible for steering me in that direction. He turned me on and turned me loose. He turned me on and he turned me loose. I have seen the dark universe yawning where the black planets roll without aim, where they roll in their horror unheeded, without knowledge or luster or name. Nemesis. HPPodcraft.com Cautious investigators will hesitate to challenge the common belief that Robert Blake was killed by lightning or by some profound nervous shock derived from an electrical discharge. It is true that the window he faced was unbroken, but nature has shown herself capable of many freakish performances. The expression on his face may easily have arisen from some obscure muscular source unrelated to anything he saw, while the entries in his diary are clearly the result of a fantastic imagination aroused by certain local superstitions and by certain old matters he had uncovered. As for the anomalous conditions at the deserted church on Federal Hill, the shrewd analyst is not slow in attributing them to some charlatanry, conscious or unconscious, with at least some of which Blake was secretly connected. Well, we are here to analyze this story, though I'm not sure how shrewd we are. Mm, yeah. The story is, of course, The Haunter of the Dark, Chris. It's the last story. It is that we're covering by H.P. Lovecraft, Chad. Here at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. And as you said, I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And uh, we heard the epigraph and opening paragraph just now. Those were read by Andrew Lehman. That excerpt from the beginning was actually taken from the recording that was done by the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast of this story, The Honor in the Dark. Yeah, we released this full reading. It was the first one we produced. It, it was, was. It was about this time two years ago. Yeah. People are still writing in to say, hey, love that reading, love that uh, love that Lehman. Yeah, people love Lehman. I'm one of those people. <laughs> the reading's really good. It's about an hour long, and it goes through the whole story. So if you haven't had a chance to sit down and read it yet, we would invite you to go to our site. Just a note, by the way, I think most folks know this, but generally when we release these full readings, we'll release them as episodes, then we retire them to the site. So our last two, The Temple and the Hound, those are still available in the feed from iTunes, all that. But... They will soon also be retired to the site, so you can find the readings on the left nav of our homepage Yes, and download them from there. We've got this story, Call of Cthulhu, Cool Air, From Beyond. Cats of Ulthar. Cats of Ulthar, Picture in the House. Those are still there to grab, and we may do more. We'll see, but that's where you get them from. So give it a listen if you haven't read yet. Yeah. And also, at the very top of the show, we heard from Robert Block. That was Bob Block at the very beginning. I played a sample of him. From 1975, he was speaking on a panel at the first World Fantasy Convention. I can link out to the whole recording. It's, it's kind of cool. Yeah, I'd, I really want to listen to it. question they were asked is how they all got started in weird fiction. I, he's not alive anymore, but virtually we kind of had him on as a guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's almost like Tupac. Exactly. It's exactly like Tupac. <laughs> uh, but anyway, two years after doing that reading, we're finally covering the story. Before we get into doing the synopsis and what have you, what about some uh, background? The story is actually a sequel of some kind, right? Yeah, it is a sequel. It's originally, um, The Shambler from the Stars was a story written by Robert Block, who was a, a friend of Lovecraft's at the time. The protagonist mm-hmm. of the story was never named, but it was. It seemed pretty apparent that it was H.P. Lovecraft. In The Shambler from the Stars. Exactly, yeah. And he dies yeah. at the end of it. Right, right. It was published in Weird Tales in September in 1935, and a reader, B.M. Reynolds, praised it, suggested that Lovecraft should respond to it in some way. Uh-huh. Lovecraft was riding high on the sale of both At the Mountains of Vanis and The Shadow Out of Time. So right. he kind of was uh, crazy with money and, you know, going out and getting <laughs> hookers and blowing all that stuff. I don't think that was and what he was doing. No? But no. he was in a good mood. He was in a good mood and, yeah. and said, hey, yeah, you know what? This will be fun. And so it's just kind of a, to engage in some literary tennis, I guess, in a way. He wrote this story to kind of send it back over to Block. That's great because it's. I think he was probably doing a little bit of self-parody. Yeah, definitely. In this story. But I, I love the story. I think it's actually kind of creepy and scary. And I'm glad that he was pulling in. I mean, if this is the last story we're going to cover, I mean, mm-hmm. he pulls in everything. He's got all the books. We'll get into it, but it, yeah. it's got the books, the monsters, the atmosphere, yeah, uh, the, the crazy townspeople, the mm-hmm. rainstorm, lightning strike, the guy that's doing ghoulish paintings. and I mean, everything is, is that Lovecraft ever had, he throws into the story. So it's a great way to conclude. Yeah. And and he was already friends with Robert Block. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, uh, I, I don't think they actually met. As far as I know, they didn't no. actually meet in person, but they were correspondence pals. Right. Block, as a teenager, wrote a fan letter to Lovecraft, mm-hmm. who was giving him some advice on his fiction. Yeah. And and Block started publishing really early. I think about seven, age seventeen mm-hmm. on, he was selling stories to Weird Tales. They were all stories that could have been Lovecraft stories. The Feast in the Abbey, The Secret in the Tomb, yeah. you know, those kinds of things. Right. Block later, he wrote a third story to kind of close out this trilogy. Called The Shadow from the Steeple. Well, that was in 1950. I haven't read the other two stories. No, they're kind of hard to find. They're not online, which uh, was a little frustrating for me because I was going, oh, great, I'll read these. And I guess yeah. they're not public domain. So there you go. You got to wait or go out and buy the books. I believe this is a collection from Arkham House that has both of those stories. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There is. And I can't think of it offhand, but we'll put a link up to it. It's yes. got the whole kind of trilogy in there, right? Mm-hmm. And there are different collections of uh, Block's stories that were heavily influenced by Lovecraft. He's got other stories like The Dark Demon, mm-hmm. The Unspeakable Betrothal. <laughs> I mean, they've got great, The Grinning Ghoul. Now, as he got older, he moved into, obviously, his own style. And and Block always gets cited on the, on the jacket of Lovecraft books, right? Because he's famous mm-hmm. for... Uh, for Psycho. But he's got a huge body of work from his Lovecraft imitations into his own style, and then he got into film and TV later. I think it probably all culminates in the Star Trek episode Cat's Paw. <laughs> Is that the one with the giant cat in the Halloween mansion? Yeah, pencil? yeah. Yeah. I love that one. I don't think it's very watchable, but I seem to remember it always. You know, when Star Trek's on in syndication, whenever that's on, I love having it on just in the background. Because every time you turn around, it's that weird meowing sound, and mm-hmm. Kirk Kirk always looks sweaty, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's great. To to talk about the very beginning of the story, there's a quote from a poem called Nemesis at the very mm-hmm. beginning, in which we had Andrew reading. Uh, Chad, do you happen to know who wrote the poem Nemesis? Well, <laughs> I. I remember asking this question, or thinking it at least, when we were doing the recording, uh-huh. because that was my first time reading the story. 
was two years ago when I was getting ready for. Oh wow! When I was prepping the recording, yeah. In fact, kind of stupidly, I I just I thought, well, why don't we for our first ransom do the very last Lovecraft story since we were working from the front to the end? Sure. Uh, but I hadn't read it when I picked that, so I started reading it and thought, uh oh. Yeah, I read it before we did that. Is this any good? You know, but then obviously it it, it turned out to be good. I knew it was good. Um, but I read that thing, the Nemesis, and I just assumed Nemesis was the author. Oh no, no. <laughs> that's, I thought it was the name of a poem, but I was like, who who wrote it? Why is it not attributed to anybody? And right. that's because H.P. Lovecraft wrote it. It's from a Lovecraft poem. Yeah, one that he wrote a long time ago. I think it was in 1917, so he was yeah. pretty young. But isn't that kind of tacky to quote one of your own works, like at the beginning of a story? Is it? Uh, well, I mean, I guess since he didn't attribute it to anybody, I, I just thought Nemesis was some, you know, I don't know what I thought. Like, <laughs> it's like, is it just some evil demon living in outer space who writes poems and Lovecraft happened to? Yeah, exactly. It's a Marvel villain. <laughs> I just, I'm sure. I just thought that uh, he made it up. Oh, the poem? We did make it up. Well, no, I mean, I thought he even kind of maybe made it up for the. Yeah, you're right. But I thought he kind of made it up for the story. Even. Maybe this ties into your uh, suggestion that this might be a self parody. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, he quotes himself in the beginning of it, and he quotes a much younger Lovecraft when he does so. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> There's a playfulness to the whole story. I don't think he can help himself, though. He eventually settles into the tone, and I think that later when we talk about the church and the exploration of it and these kind of things, it's really successfully scary. Yeah. No. In I... fact, more, more so than um, anything we've read for a long time from him. It's kind of really, I mean, when we get to the end, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it, but it's pretty epic. I mean, it almost it affects a whole town. And it also, it, it's, a, it's a weird tale. A lot of it is mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't see things. If no. you did see them, they might seem silly. Yeah. But a lot of it is just feeling and, and a sense, a, a sense of doom. Something is slowly creeping towards Robert Blake. And we know that from our opening. Why don't we get into the, the story? We know that yeah. from the opening that we heard that Robert Blake is dead. Yeah. Before we even start reading the story. And uh, the story's in the third person, somewhat uncommon for Lovecraft as well. Uh, but he does really good with it. He's dead and he's got this horrible expression on his face that he died with. They're saying he was struck by lightning somehow, though there's no evidence that... I mean, the window isn't broken No, to his apartment. Yeah. His diaries are full of crazy things. And something happened up on Federal Hill that he's connected to, but the voice of the story is saying probably there's some kind of charlatanry at work. Mm-hmm. Somebody's playing a prank of some kind. Exactly. Now, this guy, Blake, he is a painter and a writer, and he's come to Providence from Milwaukee. And he's he's been there before. When he was there before, he visited some guy who died in a fire who was also into the occult. Now, I think that might be a reference to Shambler and the Stars, but I'm not sure. I'm pretty, I'm fairly sure that the Lovecraft character is the one who died amid, right. who ended in Death and Flame or whatever. Death and so, Flame, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And this is him coming back from Milwaukee, coming back to Providence again, and he's going to do some writing. And he does. He gets he gets a lot of writing done and, and it polishes off a bunch of a bunch of stories when he's there. Yeah, in fact, but he write, he keeps a diary while he's there. And it hints in the beginning that there are a number of people after his death who believe that what's written about in his diary is all true. Not everybody thinks that it's no. charlatanry and uh, that some of the things he writes about are real. 
uh, and, and it makes quick references to a couple of things that make no sense at this point, but will make sense later. He says right. the Starry Wisdom sect, disappearance of a reporter named Edwin Lillibridge, mm-hmm. the church itself, the church record. Plus, obviously, he looked all kinds of scared when they found his body. Right. But one of these believers threw something into the bay, a curiously angled stone and its strangely adorned metal box, which were in the church. Mm-hmm. And this believer says he rid the world of something too dangerous to rest upon it. So we just get those. He teases out those little facts. It's a cool yeah. setup. He says, you know, it's up to the reader to judge whether this was a hoax or real, mm-hmm. but I can present the, the facts in the case. It's almost like a right. testimony sort of thing. Yeah. As you say, he's in. he came to Providence in the winter, moved to the spot near Brown University. Right. Sounds like a nice spot. He's got quite a view, right? The, the view that he describes is actually, uh, this is where Lovecraft lived at the time. Oh, no kidding, really? In College Street, yeah, right on. That's, that was his address. So when he's describing this, he's describing it from his, his window. And his view of the town. And he could actually see that that church, uh, which they talk about later, which was based on a um, St. John's Catholic Church, which was on Atwell Avenue. But that was tore down in 1992, so you can't see it anymore. Oh, thank goodness. But which is, <laughs> what was interesting about it is that it was actually hit by lightning in June of 1935. Really? And, yeah, Lovecraft used that kind of as, as his uh, jumping off point, that the lightning oh. hitting that. He wasn't there when it happened. He was visiting Barlow in Florida. But uh-huh. when he came back, he, you know, it was part of his view from his window. So he thought, hey, you know, I'm going to kind of write a story around that. And that was on Federal Hill? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what were the uh, story? You said he was writing some, some stories. Oh, right. The, yeah, the stories, were, which I think are pretty funny. Uh, the stories that Blake wrote were called, and they were, they were super successful. They did very well. He sold them and people loved them. They were called The, the Burrower from Beneath, The Stairs in the Crypt, Shaggy, In the Vale of Nath, the Feaster from the Stars. Oh, and that was the Feasters from the Stars was the last one. Now, yeah. Shaggy, or Shagai, <laughs> I think it's probably pronounced Shagai. Shagai is a reference to a Ramsey Campbell story. Oh, no kidding. Lovecraft is borrowing, okay. again, from other people, just like he borrowed from Howard and borrowed from Block, obviously, at, at some of the stuff. But this seemed, this character, even though it's named after Robert Block, seemed more like Clark Ashton Smith because he's also painting. Yes. These nameless, unhuman monsters and right. non-terrestrial landscapes. Like I say, he's got the kitchen sink. I mean, he, this guy's not only writing basically Lovecraft stories, but he's also Pikmin. He's also doing these horrible paintings as yeah, well. Speak, you know? Speaking of which, um, now, in we haven't talked about Tour to Lovecraft in a while, Ken Hyde's book. Um, mm-hmm. I, there, there's something I wanted to get out of here. He says that he thinks this is from one of uh, Lovecraft's uh, letters, and this he thinks is in reference to the story here. I'm, I'm going to read this excerpt. There is no drawing a line betwixt what is to be called extreme fantasy of a traditional type and what is to be called surrealism. I have no doubt but that the nightmare landscapes of some of the surrealists correspond, as well as any actual creations could, to the iconographic horrors attributed by sundry fictitioners to mad or daemon-haunted artists. If there were a real Richard Upton Pickman, I am sure he would have been represented in the recent exhibition by several blasphemous and abhorrent canvases. He's talking about how there is a bit of in surrealism. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is um, what I get out of it. In in surrealism, there is a, a touch of the weird. Well, I, I I believe that it's um and vice versa. In uh, the night ocean, when he said that uh, art is being able to both retain the images of your dreams and having the skill to execute them in a story or in a in a painting. Mm-hmm. And it seems like surrealism is so much of that. When it's done really well, it makes you feel as if it's something you've seen before, even though it doesn't make sense visually. You're familiar with it. And it 
pulls up an emotion that you are familiar right. with. Yeah, exactly. Sort of the design of weird fiction. The thing that's crazy is that uh, from Blake's window, Federal Hill almost seems like a surrealist painting. It's somehow alien. It's half fabulous. He says it's linked to the unreal and tangible marvels of Blake's own tales and pictures. And then there's this church. Of all the distant objects on Federal Hill, a certain huge dark church most fascinated Blake. It stood out with a special distinctness at certain hours of the day, and at sunset, the great tower and tapering steeple loomed blackly against the flaming sky. It seemed to rest on especially high ground, for the grimy facade and the obliquely seen north side with sloping roof and the tops of great pointed windows rose boldly above the tangle of surrounding ridge poles and chimney pots. Peculiarly grim and austere, it appeared to be built of stone, stained and weathered with the smoke and storms of a century and more. And and that church is really the, that's what you were referring to, right? Yeah. The, that, the building that was struck by lightning. Great detail about the church that Blake observes is that pigeons and swallows and birds, they, they won't even go near it. That's the only thing he can really see from there is that they'll fly, they'll, they'll rest on other buildings, but there's just sort of a big uh, no-fly zone around the church. <laughs> A natural no-fly zone for some strange reason. Now, yeah. Blake is getting ready to tackle his novel, which he's been hoping to do, which is uh, based on the supposed survival of witch cults in Maine. See, more of that? Good. I, he's getting everything yeah. in here. Yeah, he's throwing it all in. Because the survival of the witch cult is kind of a reference to the uh, the Murray stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. The witch cults of Western Europe? Yeah, yeah. Well, that and, and, and maybe other stories of his as well. It just That's come up so many times when we've been going over the stories. It's like everything is in here. When trying to work on this novel, he keeps getting distracted by this church and looking out the window, and he keeps wanting to, to look around. And by um, April, when they're getting close to Walpurgis, which is the, the eve before the spring equinox, mm-hmm. he decides he's going to go into town. Yeah, he wants to get some information, right? Yeah. So he starts to ask people about this church and what's going on with it and why it's nobody's there and what's it's creepy and it's, but nobody wants to talk about it, especially the immigrant folks. They you know they make the signs of the cross and all that stuff and say, oh, I don't know anything. <laughs> well, well, do they make the signs of the cross? They make a sign. They make some kind of sign. He asks somebody and what does it say that they? Uh, he asks this man, a merchant, about the the church, mm-hmm. and he got this look of fear on his face and made a curious sign with his right hand. So he doesn't say. The- the cross. That's right. He and doesn't say the cross. I would guess that it's the elder sign, right? Probably, yeah. Which we have uncovered here is not actually some kind of design. It's actually sort of a hand signal of some kind. Right. Well, I mean, it, it could be both. But yes, originally when it was brought up, the elder sign was something you did. It wasn't something you right. looked at or made. It, it, the whole scene of him walking uh, toward Federal Hill and toward this building is built great foreboding atmosphere, all these little encounters with people and even just the description of the streets, the housewives sitting on their doorsteps, the children who shout and play in the mud of the shadowy lane. Yeah. And and I have to say that this is a little bit better than Lovecraft's normal uh, architecture porn that he does. You're right. You know what I mean? He doesn't get into the detail. Well, it's more about the people and less about the buildings. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's hard to find the church. He sees other churches and... But but it's it's hard to locate. When you're in the city, the buildings are tall, so it's hard to actually figure out where, where it is. Right. But finally he gets there. A creepy looking, broken, neglected, rundown place. And it's surrounded by wrought iron fence. And it's up from the street. Yeah. It's uh, it's like there's a wall and it's built up. So it's about six feet above everything else. Uh, so it's got, it's almost like a set piece in that it's it's up, almost up on this like raised stage. Mm-hmm. I, everybody seems to have a building like this in their hometown. <laughs> Some kind of 
Not not maybe a church, but possibly. I mean, just an institutional building that's run down or abandoned mm-hmm. or closed, and you know, dark rumors start. Oh yeah, well there was that was it a mental institution that Bio said was closed down over in Moline. Was that a mental institution? Was that what it was, or was it just a? Well, I was thinking of there's there was that school, uh, that old abandoned school. Where was that? That was in East Moline. It was like, and that was raised up from the street. It was like there was, it was up a hill. It was all overgrown. Honestly, I think that it was just had asbestos in it, and they couldn't do anything with the property. But everybody said that a kid went up there and hung himself. Oh right. You remember that? Yes, I do remember that. I was getting that confused with the mental institution. We went up there. There were a bunch of wild dogs up there, and. I was walking with Josh, and he was te- we go up the path, and it was really creepy. I mean, it was really overgrown. You go up the path to the school, and then boom, there it is in the moonlight, kind of just separated from everything and quiet, and you can see the windows that lead down into the basement, and everything's locked up. And he's in the middle of saying to me, you know, there are some wild dogs out here, so if you hear them, you know, don't do anything. You don't want to attract their attention. And while he's saying this to me, suddenly we heard, whoop, 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 and he was gone so fast. <laughs> He was in the middle of telling me to keep my cool, and I'm looking at him in the face, and suddenly he just wasn't there. I turned around, and he was plunging through the over... I ran after him, and I remember feeling like I was on werewolf cam or something like that, because all of the branches were hitting me in the face, and I could hear all this howling behind us, and we were running out of there. We never went back up again. We ran away like Scooby-Doo. No, I was definitely Uh, not there for that. What was the mental institution, though? You know, when you were leaving East Moline and going into Moline, there was like a butcher across the way that uh-huh. had like a, a fake cow out front. Yep, okay, now yep. you go back Cattle, behind that, that that Hardee's uh-huh. and that road. And up that road, there was an ab- I thought that that was... We're talking about the same place. Oh, okay. So it wasn't an institution. It was a school. It was an old school. But it could have been used for any kind of other... Yeah, I've been... There. Well, see, that's, that's Moline. That's not East Moline. Oh, okay. All right. And uh, I did go there once, but it was during the day. I didn't. I wasn't uh, brave enough to go at night. Was it scary? Uh, yeah, well, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, I was okay. more scared of getting caught than I was uh, scared yeah. of, of any monsters or wild dogs or anything like that. Well, Blake here wisely, uh, before he gets caught, decides to go ahead and talk to a cop first, <laughs> right? When he finally sees the church. Yes. Yeah, he decides he's going to talk to a stereotypical Irish police officer. One thing that I that he... he that I thought was funny um, uh-huh. when he sees the church that it survived really well, despite being overgrown, that none of the windows are broken. In view of the known habits of small boys the world over, this is a surprise. <laughs> so that was a really funny. I mean, it's a funny line. <laughs> it is. It's pretty good. But he talks to the policeman and and, and he's this great, wholesome Irishman. <laughs> yeah. But he also make now he makes a sign of the cross. Yes, he does. He doesn't really want to talk about it, but Blake presses him. Yeah. Why are the Italian priests telling everybody not to come here? Yeah. Why did they say it was evil? Yeah. And the and the cop says uh, there had been a bad sect there in the old days, an outlaw sect that called up awful things from some unknown gulf of night. It had taken a good priest to exorcise what had come, though there did be those who said that merely the light could do it. If Father O'Malley were alive, there would be many the thing he could tell. But now there was nothing to do but let it alone. It hurt nobody now, and those that owned it were dead or far away. They had run away like rats after the threatening talk in 77, when people began to mind the way folks vanished now and then in the neighborhood. Someday the city would step in and take the property for lack of heirs, but little good would come of anybody's touching it. Better it be left alone for the years to topple, lest things be stirred that ought to rest forever in their black abyss. We learn from from that passage there, that 
whatever it is everybody's afraid of, it's something that this old cult had called up mm-hmm. in that building. And we don't know what it is, but it scares everybody. And it's, there's some that say that light could get rid of it. Yeah. That it, this thing needs darkness. And, and uh, it's tempting to think that's the stupidest weakness for a monster ever. You know, I mean, even vampires aren't afraid of light per se. It's just the sun. Right. They can't be. It's daylight. But, sure. you know, uh, if you for the horror of this thing to work, you really have to imagine this is Providence in the 30s. In the poor parts of town, they're going to have far fewer electric lights around. Yeah. You know, it's not as prevalent a thing. And it is certainly the lights aren't as reliable as they might be today. They're not a state. Sure. Yeah, and they probably don't have as many street lights, and the ones that they do have aren't necessarily maintained, so they're mm-hmm. burnt out. The world was a darker place even then. It was, it was. And uh, yeah. that, that could be very scary. I, but you, most people have access to light. I mean, people need light to do everything, even if it's a candle or a torch mm-hmm. or a lantern or something like that. They have yeah. protection. Yeah, and thank goodness, because it's not like a storm's ever going to come up and blow out their candles or anything exactly. like that. Exactly. So, yeah. That, that well, will never happen. Well, uh, Blake, he basically looks around and doesn't seem like any good way to get into this church after he's done talking to the policeman. Yeah, he beats it because he wants to get in. He's not dissuaded by the story. He is, in fact, invigorated by it. Well, yeah, that's his whole profession. He's into this stuff. He's into the occult and all that jazz. Kind of edges around, tries to find a way in. The the whole place has got a barred fence around the whole thing, but he does find one of the bars, some of the bars are missing. Mm-hmm. Like there's no way, there's no gate to get in. It's just sealed off basically, except for these bars that are missing and he slips in that way. He, he doesn't think anybody's going to stop him because everybody's so afraid of the place. Yeah. And then when he sneaks in, he could see that some of the people in the square around are making that weird sign with their right hands and right. kind of backing away. They're, yeah, they're getting scared and, you know, yeah. ladies are getting their children inside and stuff. And A fat woman darted into the street and pulled some small children inside a rickety unpainted house. I thought that was... I mean, we're talking details here. That's nice. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. So he, he looks around. The doors are locked. He can't figure out any way in except for there's a cellar window that uh, is, that's open and he can get in that way. Man, he crazy. <laughs> He's so crazy. I, I, I That part of the story, I go, wow, man, a cellar window? I don't know. I Yeah. I don't believe in uh, any ghosts or anything like that at all, but some scary old church and you're going to slip in through the cellar window. I'm just thinking of critters and yeah, raccoons, man. Instability in the building and uh, all sorts of things. But the thing is, and later on, we, we know he's sort of compelled to make this this journey. There's something sort of captured him in a way. Yeah, well, I think it's dominantly his curiosity right now. Well, I, certainly, <laughs> I, he can't help it anyway. I mean, this is what he does. This is the thing that he's into, so what are you going to do? Not go in? We wouldn't have much of a story, I guess, if he didn't. But you don't think that it's, it's actually a, a supernatural calling to him, that he's some kind of sensitive guy t- to be aware of these types of things and that he's being drawn to the place. You think it's just his curiosity? I think at this, well, you raise a good point. I think it, my reading is that right now it's just his curiosity, but it, there may very well be something else going on. Hmm. I mean, he does kind of find his way to the right place, even in the dark. He doesn't have any light with him. No. He was just wandering and he gets there and he's like, heck, I'm going in. He. He didn't even go in there with a flashlight. No. Or, or anything. No. Which is also why he's crazy. <laughs> well, the place is is covered in cobwebs. Nobody has been in here in years, in dust. Right. Uh, he goes from the basement uh, into the the main church area, and there's still pews and, and, all, and all that stuff. Except the, 
the cross that is above the altar isn't a cross, it's an ankh. That's odd. Yeah, it's really odd because uh, this is a church in New England uh, that existed in the mid-19th century, so you would think it would be mm-hmm. Christian. There's also something that the, the paintings on the windows are obscured by soot, but what he can make out from them, he doesn't like it. No, they're creepy. There's some kind of weird symbolism going on that he doesn't understand. Or if he does understand it, it hints at black forbidden things he doesn't want to think about. <laughs> yeah. Then he heads on back to the uh, vestry room. And yeah. it's a library and it's totally covered in mildew and the books are falling apart. However, the books are Lovecraft classics. All of them. All of them. Yeah. It's Perkins Cults, Necronomicon, uh, Libri Vanis. Cultus de Ghouls, Dispermus Mysterious, even some of the Nicotic manuscripts are there. There's also a small leather-bound record book with entries in some odd cryptographic medium. So it's, yes. it's got a, there's a code of some kind, and, and it, it's got all kinds of crazy symbols uh, that you might find in alchemy or astrology. Mm-hmm. Zodiological signs, uh, devices, the sun and the moon, and lots of pages of text. And, and he's hoping that he can figure this out later if he takes it home, so he pockets that yep. record book. Six index code. He wonders, you know, how did all of these classic books how did all this remain undisturbed for so long as far as far as he can tell he's the first guy to come in here in about 60 years that seems pretty odd i mean everybody can't be that superstitious right or at least whoever left these books i mean these books are super valuable and wanted by lots of people why did nobody come in here to to try and get them well now he's explored the entire ground floor he decides to to head up to that tower that he's been able to see from his apartment Mm -hmm. finds a door and a staircase that lead up there and uh starts climbing and uh, every once in a while he'll pass a, a window as he climbs and it kind of looks dizzily out over the city he keeps expecting to find a bell of some kind or a rope for a bell he, he doesn't when he gets to the top of the stairs there's that tower chamber there's no chimes in it or anything like that it's almost it's almost like it's been modded up for something else completely different yeah. it's a 15 foot square room and in there the, the center of it there is a four foot tall two-foot diameter dais, and on top of it is a metal box. Now, there's hieroglyphics all over this pillar, this pillar that the box is standing on, but there's also seven Gothic chairs sat around the, the walls yeah. facing this pillar. And then there's also portraits on the on the walls as well, but they look like the heads from Easter Island. And there's a ladder in the in the wall yes. in the corner that can go up to the trap door of the steeple. But the focal point of this whole room is this mm-hmm. box. As Blake grew accustomed to the feeble light, he noticed odd bar-reliefs on the strange open box of yellowish metal. Approaching, he tried to clear the dust away with his hands and handkerchief, and saw that the figurings were of a monstrous and utterly alien kind, depicting entities which, though seemingly alive, resembled no known life form ever evolved on this planet. The four-inch seeming sphere turned out to be a nearly black, red-striated polyhedron with many irregular flat surfaces. Either a very remarkable crystal of some sort, or an artificial object of carved and highly polished mineral matter. It did not touch the bottom of the box, but was held suspended by means of a metal band around its center with seven queerly designed supports extending horizontally to angles of the box's inner wall near the top. This stone, once exposed, exerted upon Blake an almost alarming fascination. He could scarcely tear his eyes from it, and as he looked at its glistening surfaces, he almost fancied it was transparent, with half-formed worlds of wonder within. 
Into his mind floated pictures of alien orbs with great stone towers, and other orbs with titan mountains and no mark of life, and still remoter spaces, where only a stirring in vague blacknesses told of the presence of consciousness and will. In this box, there is this gem. It's a polyhedral. I think of it as like a ten-sided die for people that play <laughs> role-playing games. The tetradecahedron. It's a. It's just got many sides. A tetradecahedron is. It can have any number of sides, but it has to have basically kite-like shapes, and then they're sort of put long points together on one side, and then another group of those put together on another side, and they're. They're stuck together. So it could be, mm-hmm. it could have 10 sides. It could have uh, 12, 14, 16. It could be as, as many as you can squeeze onto there. So he doesn't specifically say how many sides it has. If you know what a 10-sided die looks like, that's it. And uh, it's it's not touching anything in the box, I thought. No, that's so weird. Yeah, it's, it's being suspended by these little tiny metal suspension wire things. Yeah. Why? I don't know, but that's a cool detail. This is probably a good place to break. So Blake has looked into the stone. There's going to be some effects from having done that. Yeah. And when we come back next time, we'll start here in this scary little church room. And uh, he finds a a friend up there. And we're going (laughs) to discuss what that friend knows in the next episode. Yeah. We've played a bit of music on the show before that was influenced by Lovecraft and that sort of thing. But, you know, we've never really played any hard rock or, or metal. No. Even though that that's probably the community that's given HPL the most attention. Yeah, absolutely. While I was in Leeds for the live show, we ran into some guys from Arkham Witch. Yeah. Which is a hard rock band out in your neck of the woods. It is. They gave us uh, their CD on Crom's Mountain, which already you know, <laughs> that's a kick-ass title. Yes. Uh, I didn't play it for a while, but then finally I was around the house cleaning and I threw this on and baby, it is a great record. <laughs> I love it. So I just wanted to go out. We're, we're gonna we can do our outro, but I just wanted to play uh, one of the tracks on the way out today. Yes. And I decided I'd play the one that's the most overtly Lovecraftian. It's called "The Lord of Roulier, and it's about Cthulhu. Yeah. And it rocks. So. So thanks, <laughs> thanks. I'm gonna say thanks to Simon for uh, for coming by uh, our signing that we did. I met Simon before. He works at the Keithley Library. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. His band is great, man. I love yeah. them. If you're in the uh, the Yorkshire area and, and you see that they're playing, go check them out. They're, they're really good. Absolutely. So we're going to jam that in a second. Um, thanks, of course, to Andrew for recording this a couple of years ago. His reading is great. Now we're going to be back next week with the second part and conclusion of The Haunter of the Dark. Sounds good. Talk to you then. I am Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. This one goes out to all the motherfuckers who like hard rock.
Friends and-